This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. Good morning, church family. I'm glad I'm with a family here, and uh, I really appreciate all your prayers. Just standing all right now, Adam. Okay. Um, last week, David shared with us um, from Matthew 6, and we spoke about three essentials of the kingdom, um, giving, prayer, and fasting. So today we're looking um, at prayer. So just to confuse you, we've just had a reading from Luke 11, and we're going to have the same reading from Matthew 6. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15, and I suggest you keep this open in front of you, because I'm going to use a lot of scripture references today. Um, and I'll, it's probably best if I just give you the references and if you're interested, look them up later. We've also got at the end of the meeting a prayer diary for everyone to take home. And all those verses that are mentioned today, or most of them, will be printed out on here as well. So you'll be able to look at those again afterwards. So if you keep, keep your Bible open at Matthew 6, and we'll just read again from verses 5 to 15. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, if you keep your Bible open there, um, um, David just referred to the fact that people came to Jesus because they'd seen something about his prayer life, something about him, that made them think they could learn something from him. Um, And so let's look back to see what it was about Jesus that the people had already seen that drew the crowds to him. And if you look in Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. As David showed us last week, the kingdom of God is not just a matter of proclamation, but also of demonstration. It's both to be heard and seen. And Jesus had come with a message of good news, but the people had seen that it was a message of good news. They saw that he knew God intimately And he was bringing heaven to earth, and they could see it before their eyes. They couldn't get enough of it. 
Now, contrast that with their religious leaders. They'd not been able to help them in their hunger to know God because basically they didn't know him themselves. All they could proclaim really was just another rule. And all they could demonstrate really was a righteousness that impressed people around them but didn't impress God because they didn't really know how they could impress God. So let's look at Jesus. On one hand, he was at home with God. That was his natural habitat. And on the other hand, he was at home with the people on earth. And his mission was to bring them both together, to bring God's kingdom on earth. Now, isn't that how we all want to be? We want to be at home with God and equally at home with people around us and bring them together, bring God to the people and bring the people to God. That is our mission. And the connecting thing for us, I believe, is prayer. So our prayer is, Lord, teach us to pray. And I really believe if we genuinely ask him that, he will answer that prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I was always taught prayer is talking to God. But that is rather boring. Prayer is much more than that. It's listening to God. It's being God's kingdom. It's being in God's presence. It's hearing what God has to say to us. It's, it's hugely more than us just going on and on at God. So let's have a new definition for prayer, shall we, today? I'm not sure if, if that's quite visible, but prayer is... Pursuing God's presence with, for purpose, with passion. Sorry about the P's in it. And what we're going to do, Chris is impressed here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's presence. We're going to have to do all of these things very quickly, I'm afraid. We're going to find out how and why we pursue it, what our purpose is in it, and how, if we can, we can get more passionate about it than we are now. So we'll start off with God's presence. Where do you feel most at home? God's presence is our real home, just as it was for Jesus. It's our soul's home. It's where we were made to belong. Augustine famously said, Saint Augustine, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So we're just going to, um, I hope I'm not going to embarrass you, we're going to go through the facts of life, which is God's presence. These are the most important facts that you can ever know about life. You were created to enjoy it forever, but our sins separate us from it. However, God was present in Christ, and through him, he reconciled the world to himself. I need to repent of my sin and ask Jesus to come into my life as Lord. And when I do this, I too become the place of his presence and part of his kingdom on earth. That's actually quite an amazing thing. I just read it there, but that's amazing. Now, everybody here, I don't know all of you, but God's heart for you is that you will come into his presence and you will be part of this fantastic kingdom. And there's only one thing that separates us from God, and it's our sin. And the sin can be dealt with right now. And I just want to encourage anyone that's here this morning, don't feel that you have to count yourself out. If you have not got right with God, it's very straightforward. All you need to do is repent of your sins, make Jesus your Lord, and he will come into your life and be your king 
and you can be part of his kingdom and his presence will come in to you. It's very straightforward. I know that you could pray that prayer now and I know there's people afterwards that you could talk to. So I really would encourage you to do that so that no one here today feels they can't be part of what I'm going to share. So we'll move on. That's God's presence in a very small nutshell. (laughs) Sorry, I missed that last bit off. Right, we're going to find out now about pursuing God's presence. So it's on this slide. There you go. Right, why do we have to pursue God's presence if God's presence is in us? Have you ever thought that? Right, there's two reasons that I thought of. The first one is because Jesus did. Jesus was clearly full of the Holy Spirit and yet he still found it necessary to pursue God. And Jesus ran the race before us. He was the first one and we do what he did. And if he had to pursue God, so do we. And the second reason is there is a war on and we have an enemy who right from the very beginning has tried to separate us from the presence of God and he's still on that mission now. He even tried with Jesus, as we saw last week, just back in the previous couple of chapters, Matthew 4, there was Satan even trying to separate Jesus from God's presence and he didn't manage it. So let's be a little more practical then. How can we successfully pursue God? And the first thing, which is actually, if I had to stop somewhere, I could stop here. When I've told you this, we just ask for the Holy Spirit's help. God is spirit, and prayer is a spiritual activity. Now, I know this sounds silly, but for some reason I thought, because I was talking to God, I had to do it myself, and I didn't ask God to help me because I was talking to him. When I realised, is that that silly? No. (laughs) To me it makes sense. When I realised that God wanted to help me to talk to him, and I started to ask the Holy Spirit to help me, that took an enormous burden from me, And I began to experience a freedom and a lightness in prayer that I'd never experienced before. I'll just read you from Romans 8, verses 26 to 27. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. God the Holy Spirit is more passionate than we are about seeing us in prayer. And he is going to help us if we allow him to. And another reason for depending on the Holy Spirit and not doing things in our own strength is because the glory must always go to God. And if we were to be able to boast about our prayers having accomplished anything, it would all be wrong. Our prayers are only powerful because he is powerful. And we, in our weakness, lean on him in prayer. Now, in Matthew 11, verses 29 to 30, I'm going to read this to you from the message. It comes across quite fresh. This seems to express to me true kingdom living and what I've just said about prayer. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is Jesus telling us how to live in the kingdom. This is Jesus telling us how to pray. God wants us to rest, to be at home in his presence. And when we're in God's presence, we're there with Jesus beside us and the Holy Spirit helping us. Whereas man-made religion makes prayer a burdensome, self-centered, maybe even a pride thing. Jesus shows us another way. I've got to confess, I was on the way to a prayer meeting a couple of years ago, and I thought, do you know, I've got enough burdens of my own, and I'm going to come to this prayer meeting, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to have even more burdens. And sorry about that, folks, but that's how it was. And God said to me, well, really, he rebuked me, and he said, the weight of my presence must be greater than the weight of your problems. Now that helped me there and then, but ever since then, it's true in all things, but it's particularly true in prayer. We come to him with a burden of problems, and they're greater than the weight of his presence. We've got it all wrong. So we're going to bear that in mind, just look at a few practical ways of how we can get that balance right. Um, Just looking back at Matthew 6 again, um, I'm going to read this again from the message. Verse 6, just verse 6. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus, or we might say the balance, will shift from you and your problems to God. And you will begin to sense his grace. So that's where we're going to be. Have a little picture come up. Yes, there we have the little balances. So the first thing that we're going to consider is the weight of his presence must be greater than the problems around me. Now that we've just read says, the easy way to solve this is to go in your room, shut the door. Kind of, it's perhaps a bit of a metaphor of shutting out all the things that surround us. And I would say that the first thing that we need to do when we come into God's presence is, it was actually beautifully illustrated this morning, wasn't it? We need to, we need, we need to sing the songs of heaven. We need to have the songs of heaven in our heart. Worship, thanks, praise, adoration. If you can speak or sing in tongues, do that. If you can't, it's a great gift from the Holy Spirit to help us, and I would urge you to pursue it. If you read Revelation, that's all that, that happened all the time. Worship, thanks, praise. We've brought heaven to earth as soon as we start worshipping, praising, and thanking God. And it's something we can all do right at the very beginning of our prayer time. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Recognize that he is the king of the kingdom and simply worship him. And then I would say, that's not like part one and then you go on to part two. You stay there. You keep coming back there. That's not somewhere you move on from. You just stay in that presence, that place of worship and adoration. And then even when you finish praying, stay there. Just never leave it. Just keep going back to it. It's your home. It's your natural habitat. But saying that... I think we do need practically to plan to spend time in God's presence. We need to devote ourselves to prayer, as Colossians 4 says. 
Devotion speaks of love, but it also speaks of commitment. And I think in our day we need to commit ourselves by putting time aside. Now your love for Jesus and your love for others will enable you to do that. It is a challenge for us all. But if we love him and we love others, we'll have to do it and we will manage to do it. I would encourage parents as well, help your children to build this into their life. Um, I'll just tell you about Susanna Wesley. I like this. She's got, well, she had 16 children. Two of them were, well, with John and Charles, who obviously went on to be amazing men of God. And she would simply sit down in the middle of all her children and she'd throw her apron over her head and they would know she was in her room and she'd close the door effectively and she was with God. And the fact that they could see her do that also <coughs> motivated and encouraged them and taught them to pray. I don't know if they threw aprons over their heads, but anyway, certainly John and Charles went on um, to be men of God who must have been greatly inspired and supported by the prayers of their mother. Whatever stage you're at in life, there's no better time than now to pursue God's presence. When I was a teenager, I thought, when I've got a house of my own, I haven't got brothers and sisters and parents everywhere, it would be so easy to take time with God. And then when that happened, I'd also got a mortgage and responsibilities and goodness knows what else. And then I had children, <laughs> and that was when I realised what a full-time job really was. It's not easy to do this, <laughs> but if you love God and you love people enough, you will do it. And, and you'll love it. It'll be good. It'll be good for you. But having said that, that we should spend time praying in private. We should always, we could, we should always be encouraged to spend time praying in public. Um, Jesus did this partly, I think, to model it to us, but also because sometimes, often, things happened in front of him that required heaven on earth there and then required the presence of God there and then. There was no point in saying, I'll go home and pray for you. He needed to do it then and there, and he was able to do it then and there. And what he did brought heaven to earth then and there and changed lives. So please, I don't think Jesus wanted us to take it so seriously that we need to shut the door and not tell anyone we're praying. We need to just bring heaven to earth wherever we go. So this is another confession now, all right? So you've gone in your room and you shut your door and all your problems are outside the door. But they're not, are they? They're still in your head. <laughs> but God wants us to be at peace in his presence. So he wants to help us deal with the things that are cluttering our life up. And that's where I would suggest we go back to the Lord's Prayer. The first thing is, may your name be glorified, your kingdom come. Your will be done. If we go back to that, we let God's eternal purposes focus our minds. That single-mindedness will enable us to be clear in our thoughts. And in fact, single-mindedness will stabilize our whole life, not just our prayer time. Now, for those of you that love to have a deadline to help you focus, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 8, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. So there we go. <laughs> Let's move on. <clears throat> so, so we focused on God and that's helping us to deal with the clutter inside of us. 
Then Jesus teaches us to pray, give us day by day our daily bread. He knows that when we come to him in prayer, we've got loads of things buzzing around our heads that concern us. And what concerns us concerns him. So he encourages us to share that with him. But then he does go on to say, let's get this in perspective. In Matthew 6, 31 to 34, he says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. Right, a third decluttering thing then that we can do with our minds is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We must ask the Father for forgiveness for anything that's come between us and him and us and other people. This clears the way for God to work in us and through us. It clears the way for his kingdom to come into us and out of us and it will bring peace to our minds and hearts. And then we're taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Now we said there's a war on and our mind is often the main battlefield. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us use God's living word to bring his kingdom order into our thought life. I'll just go to that great chapter on the battle armour that we have. Ephesians 6, verse 17. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We can declare the word of God to God in prayer, and to our own body and soul. And we can even, like Jesus, declare it to Satan when he's tempting us. James 4, verse 7 to 8 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. We've got to resist Satan's lies that God isn't listening to us, that God hasn't come into our prayer time. We've got to resist all of the lies by knowing the word of God. We've got to raise up our shield of faith because Hebrews 11:6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And this, is, this will be our reward. If we seek him, our reward will be him, himself. So I think that we can use the Lord's Prayer in our praying to help us deal with the distractions and the problems within our minds as well as the distractions and everything outside of us but I just want to say this that the weight of his presence is at its greatest when we're with others Matthew 18 verses tw- verse 20 just further on from the Lord's prayer for where two or three gather in my name there am I with them so plan to pray with others it's here that the gifts of the spirit shared around the body, will help us to experience his presence even more. It is an incredible privilege when this happens, when you're you're praying with others and different gifts are being used and the presence of God is so weighty and heavy, it's just like nothing else on earth. Now, quite apart from that, I find that praying with others helps me to deal with distractions. It helps me to focus And I learn so much from hearing other people pray. I've learned so much from people here, just listening to their heart, listening to them pray, listening to 
to their passion for God's kingdom. So I just would like to encourage you to make it to existing prayer meetings or groups, even if you've never done it before. Um, the life groups that hopefully most people are, are in, and if you're not, I know Richard Jones would help you to find an appropriate one. They're the best places for us to learn how to maximise our new lives in God's kingdom. So, um, wherever your life group meets, whatever home it's in, your life group's natural habitat must be the presence of God and the kingdom of God. And so, let's all meet together with that expectancy to listen to the Holy Spirit and also equally listen to one another in our times of prayer together. I want to have a little word about a little word, especially for my life group here. Amen. Okay? Another key reason for meeting together to pray is that there is power in our agreement. Matthew 18, verse 19, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, if we agree with one another's prayers, we can pray, yes, Lord, too. We've got this little Hebrew word for it that we've not managed to translate into our own English word, amen. Some people think amen is another word for it's time to put the kettle on, <laughs> or it's a kind of spiritual full stop, like over and out. But actually, what it means is, I agree, they might be saying the prayer, but I am praying just as much. I'm praying it too. And when we say amen to one another's prayers, we're praying with them. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, and so to go along with that, really, is Matthew 6, 5 to 6 shows us. God doesn't want us to role play, either before him or before each other when we pray. He wants us to be honest and open. And I believe it's just as important for us in our times together to be honest and open with each other as it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're one body. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. We're in this together, folks. Pursuit of God is not just for the fervent few. but It's for all of us. It's for the whole church. So, we now need to look at our purpose. I've got two heroes from the Old Testament to help us here. There's Esther, bless her. She's a girl surrounded by problems. You want me to tell you what they are? <laughs> well, the good news is she's won Miss Persia. But the bad news is... She didn't put herself in for the competition. She was forced into it. Now, the good news is that her prize is becoming King Xerxes' queen. But the bad news is she can only go and see him when he gives his permission. And if she tries going to see him without his permission, off with her head. Well, the bad news is King Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman, is an Amalekite. He hates God's people, the Jews. But the good news is no one knows that Esther is a Jew. The bad news is that Haman is upset that Esther's uncle, Mordecai, refuses to bow down to him. And the even more bad news is that Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman then tricks the king into issuing a decree that permits the destruction of all the Jews in the kingdom. Now this is really bad news. It's really bad news for them. It's really bad news for us because if that happened... Jesus would not have been born and we wouldn't be saved. 
So going back to Esther's story, if you don't know this story, please read it at home. It's in a book called Esther. <coughs> Mordecai sends a message to Esther telling her about the decree and asking her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Esther sends a message back saying the king hasn't asked her to see her for 30 days and if she approaches him she risks her life. Mordecai then sends a message to Esther challenging her fear and saying what if you've been chosen to be queen just for this moment? And Esther sends a message back, okay, go and get all the Jewish people in Susa together and fast for me. Then I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I die, I die. When the queen sees Esther, she is And he touches her with a scepter to show that she is accepted. And then he asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What do you ask me? I will give you up to half my kingdom. So Esther had come to the royal position for such a time as this. She had access to the king and she had his favour. By her intercession, she was able to save God's people from destruction. And as a result of her actions, she made a way for Jesus, the ultimate son of David, to be born in fulfilment of God's promises. Now, as God's redeemed people on earth, we have a purpose like Esther's. You might not look like her, but you've got a purpose like Esther's. We were born into this generation and positioned, both spiritually and positioned where we are now, for such a time as this in our generation. That's you, that's me. Because of Jesus, we have access to the King of Heaven. We have this privileged position. And because of Jesus, we have his favour. We have his favour. When we come to him, we can come boldly. And why do we come boldly? Not just for our own enjoyment, because we've got something of importance to do. And that something is we're to pursue his presence for purpose, to intercede for ourselves and for others, and to make requests of him that we'll see his purposes fulfilled and his kingdom established on the earth. Now, I do need to point out here, there's a major difference between approaching King Xerxes and approaching God. God is the awesome King of Heaven, but Jesus taught us we are to call him Father. He loves us as his children. Twelve times I counted, in Matthew 6 alone, he teaches us to call him Father. He refers to him himself as Father. And in Matthew 7, the next chapter, verses 9 to 11, he says, You parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So we have this privileged access to God, but when we're there, we're welcomed as children and we can talk to him as father. Now, I said I've got two um, Old Testament heroes to help us with our purposeful praying, and this now is Elijah. I haven't got any pictures of Elijah's face because I like to see him the way the Bible describes him, as humbled before God and bowing with his face between his knees, praying and pleading before God. 
in 1 Kings verse, uh, well, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 18, it's quite a long story again, maybe you want to read it later. We're looking at Elijah at the end of a three and a half years drought. And God has told Elijah that he will soon send rain. Believing God's word, Elijah then goes and tells the king this, and the king goes to celebrate. He tells the king he can hear a mighty rainstorm coming. But Elijah climbs to the top of Mount Carmel. Can't see any mighty rainstorm at all. Clouds not visible, skies all blue. He humbles himself before God to pray. Seven times he does this, and at the end of each prayer time, he asks his servants, go and look. Can you tell me if there's any difference in the sky? And on the seventh time, his servant comes back, he says, I can see a cloud the size of a man's hand. The wind blows up, the storm comes, the drought is over, God's word is fulfilled. Now Elijah was persistent in his praying, but when you look at it, he was only praying God's word into being. God had said he was going to do it, but that didn't mean that Elijah then just sat and had a party with the king. He had to pray until he saw God's word fulfilled. Now, why didn't he give up? It, it was a huge, huge thing that he said to the king, a huge act of faith. But I, I think he saw the rain with his eyes of faith. He'd seen the rain. He'd seen the rainstorm. He could see it coming, and he was praying because he'd seen it. Can you see God's will being done in the situations around you, the things you're praying for? Can you see with your eyes of faith what it looks like when God's kingdom comes into your your school or your workplace or your family? What does it look like? If you can't see it, ask the Holy Spirit to help you because that vision, that sight will give you the faith and the expectancy to keep on praying. So, if the kingdom is God's, why should he need us to pray for it to come on earth? Won't he do it without us? Well, Matthew's gospel shows us that God has made Jesus the king of this new kingdom. And Ephesians 1, verse 22. And God placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God gave kingdom authority to Jesus. And he shares it with us. We are the body and the bride of Christ. We're the ones that he came to earth to win. A soulmate, someone like him, a warrior bride who would fight with him to see God's kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And he entrusts his authority to us. And as we pray and proclaim and demonstrate God's authority under the authority of Jesus our King and Jesus our Lord... God's will begins to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's purpose for us, his purpose for the church. And, and this is the primary purpose of prayer. It's not about getting our needs met, but it's about continuing the work of Jesus. In fact, when we pray, then, it means it will be Jesus praying through his body. We will be praying his prayers so as we get into his presence and get to know him better, 
we'll get to know his will better, and we'll be praying those prayers just as if, in fact, it is the Spirit of Jesus praying in us and through us for the things that are on the heart of God. Just a few practical things then. If you want to be purposeful, faith-filled, and faithful in prayer, let the weight of God's glorious presence fill your mind and heart and your requests. When you're in his presence, you can't help but cry out, Lord, your name be glorified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You, you can't help it because he's just so amazing and awesome and glorious. You will just want it to be everywhere. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to know what's on God's heart and how to pray in every situation. And then, as we said, get to grips with what the word says about prayer, about God's promises, about who you are, what your rights and privileges are. The spirit and the word together will transform not only your world, but the whole world. I think David's going to speak on the word more in a couple of weeks. I would also suggest you get some fuel for prayer so you're not just praying about your own concerns, but you find out about where in the world your prayers are needed most, where the need is greatest. And in fact, you don't need to gather that all and read it in your prayer time. You can be picking that up all the time and then ask the Holy Spirit to bring it back to your mind in your prayer time to the things that you've heard about and seen in the world and the needs that God lays on your heart. You can be bringing to God in your prayer time. And we've uh, put published, printed this off for today for your use. Uh, it's just a tool to help you if you want to use it to pray together as a church for the different things that this church is doing in, in terms of outreach and ministry. Um, there's some, a few helpful notes in there as well, so I think you can pick these up at the end of the meeting. Another practical thing, make a note of answered prayer. I don't, don't think you necessarily need to write it down, but, but take note of it. Now, to do that, it stands to reason you need to pray quite specifically. So if you pray very generally, you will never really know whether your prayer's been answered or not. But if you dare to pray specifically for things and you get a specific answer, then your faith will be encouraged. And if you then share that with the whole church, everybody's faith will be encouraged and everybody's faith will grow. And I know I found in times when I've been struggling a bit and I look back at what God has done, I'm just so encouraged and so strengthened. So if you're the sort of person that can do that, take note of it, but otherwise just do it in your mind. Take note and share it with others to encourage one another. So how do we know that we've got this balance I was talking about earlier, right? This balance between God's presence and our problems. We know it because we have peace. We have peace. When we brought all our prayers and all our concerns to God, we're at peace. Philippians 4, 6 to 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Don't let anything rob you of the peace that is ours in Christ. So there's just one other thing that we need to look at. And some of you are already getting quite worried, I can tell. We're looking at how we can get passionate about this. It really is the key 
to, well, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as well as teach us to pray. We need to learn the importance of prayer. And if we're not passionate about it, we'll find it very difficult to do it. Um, now, God has set the supreme example in this. Passion, that is. Do you know that our English word passion originally meant suffering? And it referred specifically to Christ's suffering on the cross. And then, then kind of morphed to mean sort of strong feeling, and especially we associate it with feelings of love. God displayed passion of all those meanings in giving his son. While we were far away from him in rebellion and sin, his love found a way to bring us back. But it caused him great pain, great suffering to do it. God didn't have to do it, and Jesus didn't have to do it. They chose to out of love for us. So we, we know this quality of love, this passion, is not a kind of comfortable, warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's a strong decision. Jesus displayed true passion for God, his kingdom, and his purposes when he set his face towards the cross. He refused to let the pain and the shame of it put him off. He was consumed, we're told, by zeal or passion for the Lord's house. Now, to onlookers, the cross must have looked like the end of his kingdom. The end of his kingdom he'd be proclaiming and demonstrating, but far from it. It was here that the Father's name, above all, was glorified. It was here that his kingdom came in its greatest power and authority, and here that the Father's will, more than, more than at any other time, was done on earth as it is in heaven. It was here that he gave his body so that we could have everything that we needed, particularly so that we could come into his presence and even become the bread of his presence for others. He gave his blood so that we could know and give forgiveness and so that we could overcome temptation and be delivered from the evil one. So I can see that not only did he pray the Lord's Prayer, he gave his life for it. He demonstrated it on the cross. So I think I ask myself, am I as passionate for God's purposes as Jesus? Do I want to become like him? Can my heart really be changed from what it is now, which is probably far too lukewarm, to what Jesus' heart is like? Now, I believe, I've been praying about this, the Holy Spirit brought this passage, this passage I'm just bringing up now, to me recently. And I'd just like to finish by looking at this now. It's Zechariah 12, verse 10. You probably won't want to turn to it. <clears throat> so I've got the verse out here for us. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And in John 19, verse 37, we learn that this prophecy relates to the passion or suffering of Jesus on the cross. Now, God is in the business of changing hearts. And this reading in Zechariah portrays for us a massive change of heart. First of all, You've got this hard-hearted people who really couldn't care less about Jesus, who just wanted to get him out of their life, and they crucified him. But then these same people experience something. 
they experience an outpouring of the spirit of grace and supplication, which is another word for prayer. And as a result of this, they repent, they change so much that they begin to mourn for him as for an only son. What an incredible change of heart. And if you read on in Zechariah, the outcome of this revelation was a changed nation. Honesty and purity become desirable again. Doing God's will and seeing God's kingdom on earth become a priority again. Let's ask God for his Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, to move upon those people that we're praying for, or those people that we have prayed for and maybe given up on, who haven't yet heard that Jesus died for them and they haven't seen it personally and they've got no heart yet to the things of God. Let's ask with faith for the Holy Spirit to move on them because we can see that God can change hearts radically and we can believe that that can happen even to these people that we can think of now that we're praying for. And similarly, let's ask the Holy Spirit to move upon those people we're praying for whose hearts have gone cold towards God. There's nothing more heartbreaking than to know people that have loved God and for the cares and the troubles of this life have, have caused their hearts to go cold and God sees them with such compassion and passion. And if his Holy Spirit of grace and supplication is poured out on them, they too will warm in their hearts towards God. So we can pray that the Holy Spirit will move upon those people. But then, last of all, let's look at us. I suppose we can imagine a little bit how God must have felt when Jesus was crucified. Um, this depicts, really, how God the Father felt when his only son was crucified. He, he was mourning for his one and only son. This was God's heart. So there's a sense in which this prophecy is speaking of a people who are beginning to understand and share the heart of God about Jesus. They're beginning to feel how the Father feels. They begin to feel his pain over sin. They're beginning to feel his deep love for his only son, the one who is pierced. They're beginning to feel what it cost him to give up Jesus as sacrifice for, for us. And therefore, they're beginning to understand something of how deep his love is for, for me, for, for us, for the world. So, if we want to share God's heart, I just want to suggest, really, that we ask God for his spirit of grace and supplication to fall upon ourselves. I want to pray that it falls upon me, upon the church worldwide, so that we all begin to really share God's heart. His passion, his heart, for Jesus. We begin to love Jesus as the Father did, does. We begin to sense and share his heart for the lost on earth. Really, really feel it. And that we begin to have his passion, therefore, for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven because we'll know that that is the only answer to the needs of this world. And if we have this heart, if we begin to have this passion, out of that heart, may we press on to pursue his presence with passionate purpose.
Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.